Episode 18. One thing that's become apparent since starting this podcast um, just under a year ago is the international reach it's got. For those who don't know, when you've got a podcast, um, a lot of the analytics you get back, you can track just how far around the world that your work is going. Um, Although probably around 50% of the listeners are based in the UK, there's definitely another large percentage from North America, um, then Australia, New Zealand, countries all around Europe, Scandinavia, South America, Argentina, and even some listeners in countries as far as Iraq, Iran, etc. So it's been quite interesting. One of the things I often wonder about is we go on in the UK about our registration and our method of training. And people very often go on about the gold standard of training in the UK and stuff like that. One thing I'm interested in is how things are done in other parts of the world. Um, so this this week, we're looking at training and legislation in North America. So with that, we include Canada and the United States of America. I'm really lucky to be joined this week to have this discussion with a podcasting friend of mine, all the way from Canada, Brian Mullins. For those of you who don't know Brian or have not listened to the Mullins Farrier podcast, Brian's podcast, uh, a nice lengthy podcast um, where he discusses various farriers, some you would have heard of, some you may not have heard of. But the in-depth and the depth of conversation he goes, I think every single person I've listened to, I've learnt something just because they came up with a good idea, or they do something a little bit different. It's all very interesting. Not only that, I think Brian's got one of the nicest voices in podcast land. So we sat down for a couple of hours and basically just discussed his route of training, other routes of training in North America, the impact on not having any kind of legislation or, or registration, good and bad, and um yeah give it a listen see what you think yeah so then should we get this party started sure we can do that and i've got something for you at the end of this as well Uh something to look forward to okay but you you like it but we'll we'll get (laughs) on to that later so okay so first of all brian can you tell me a little bit about your background where you know where you came from before you were shearing horses and how you got into shearing horses and the training education route you took sure um i'm going to start out with an apology to a farrier the first farrier i ever met 
when I was 12 years old, I started working at a standard bred breeding farm. That's like the sulky horses. And we had this farrier come in and he trimmed the mares and he was always miserable. We used to joke about how bad he must stink when he, when he goes home. And years later, when I became a farrier, I realized we never picked their feet. They were all these old sour mares and he had to do 10 or 12 of them. And it must have just been horrible. So I, I, Mike Patton, if you ever happen to hear this, my apologies. I haven't run into him since, but I, I, I would really like to apologize. So that was my start. I, I worked there off and on um, just helping this gentleman out for years. He was like a second father figure to me. And anyways, then um I was going to become a sound engineer. And so I worked in that field for a little while, realized it wasn't going to take me where I wanted to go for some reason. And then I drifted and tried a million different things. And I was selling horse trailers. I met a girl. I was dating her. She was a farrier. So I started going around with her and to her stops, just holding horses and stuff. And then a gentleman bought he came in and bought a trailer off of me to use as a farrier rig and he kept bringing it back in for service work and stuff like that and after talking he offered me a job so we uh and that is how things work here in north america uh basically i worked with him one day decided that was the route i was going to take um gave a month's notice to my job and then started working for him for five and a half years. As I built my own business, uh, about two years in, I started doing my own trims and stuff, but I worked with him at least five days a week, uh, for at least the first three and a half, four years. And yeah. And then became a farrier in North America. So just a quick one. Um, how old were you when you first started to train and sort of consciously actually train to be a farrier then? Well, that would give away my age. No, okay. Um, I was 28 when I started. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I was actually told. So I, it was a disadvantage and an advantage. Now, I've seen people at school where they go right out of high school or whatever go to farrier school and they kind of approach it like anybody who has just continued on in school and wasn't really invested in it now starting at 28 i felt like i was behind the eight ball big time mm. so i started reading books um i would go to other people's shops it, the interesting thing about here is you can trade a lot of alcohol for education <laughs> in North America. So <laughs> I, I could spend a day or a, a lot of time in people's shops and give them whiskey, like a bottle of whiskey because they wouldn't accept payment. And that's how I started to learn a lot. The gentleman I worked for, he wasn't really big into forging. Um, he did a lot of, high-end hunters and jumpers and inventors and dressage horses. So I had the experience of working on the horses, but I really felt like I, like I was really interested in the forging aspect of things. Yeah. And then as I started to work on my own and get busier, uh, I had 
a girl helping me. I hated calling them apprentices because I didn't have any certifications or anything, which is not a requirement here. But um, she had gone to Heartland Horseshoeing School and I had met her teacher, Chris Gregory, at um, several clinics and stuff. And I read his textbook. So I decided to go down and uh, Missouri is two flights away from me and (laughs) I would go and stay for a week and do, they had a blacksmithing course in February. So I did that. And then there was a certification course for the American Farriers Association where you would work at the school. They would teach you the theory, the practical, the forging. And then at the end of that week, the examiners would come in and you had two attempts at the exam, which is pretty unique for here. Like even in Canada, we might have one exam a year, maybe. So um, I did that and I was hooked. I just kept going back down. I've been there nine times for about a week each time. And yeah, that was sort of the route I took. And then there are lots of clinics here uh, we have the healthcare summit in the U.S. and um, the NEAP puts on something every year. With the lockdown, that's kind of kibosh that for a while. Yeah. But but and then there's the AFA convention. So there are lots of opportunities to learn, but you have to be that type of person who who wants to. Yeah. <clears throat> so what? What qualification have you done up until this point? So I got my CF and then I think it was a year later, I did my CJF. So that's certified journeyman farrier with the American Farriers Association. Yeah. And then Chris and his colleagues had come up with a testing system called the FITS. Yeah. The the Farriers International Testing System. And it's almost like a, a hybrid of the American and the British system. So I have attempted and completed half of that. I was supposed to go back in October. And so that was my next, it's the associate of the fits is the exams I'm attempting there. And then a few of my colleagues and I here, we're working together. We have a plan to attempt the, the AW. Oh, brilliant. British system. (laughs) Uh, good luck no uh, you'll, i'm sure you'll be fine um but no it's um yeah i i, I think it's it, joking aside i think the associate of the worship company the pharisee awcf exam i think it's a brilliant brilliant test and i think certainly for british farriers once you've qualified you know and you've got a few years experience behind you i just think it's such a worthwhile thing i mean yes there's farriers in the uk who've not done it you know and there's some pretty amazing farriers who've spent their whole lifetime not doing it and it's not about saying that you are any better than the man next to you but i think a lot of i used to see it a lot in the olden days where because again because they used to do all the higher exams at the army school when i was working there and you'd see guys have a go and then very quickly see just how little they actually knew. Yep. And then they'd go off for the next year on this voyage of discovery 
to get up to the standard to pass it. And, you know, I've got lots of friends who left it very late in their careers or certainly into their sort of midlife part and have attempted it. And after attempting it, whether they passed or failed, they've all said the same thing. I, Looking back, I've been chewing horses half my life with the handbrake on. Yep. Because you're just yep. looking into it into a lot more depth. And if you get in with the right people and, you know, and like we said earlier, with so many people out there with the knowledge and they just want to share it. They don't want to make a living out of it. They just want to share. You know, and let's face it, most of us learn by making mistakes. And, you know, rather than you have to make those mistakes at the sufferance of the horse or yourself, um, <laughs> you know, you just share the knowledge. And I think that's why I think a lot of farriers are quite willing and generous with their time and sharing that yeah especially the ones who've completed the higher exams like mm. you definitely see that from them so. and it's interesting because you once you start doing the exams you find a lot of people get addicted to that because they do see that there is so much more to learn and there's a big difference like i spent my apprenticeship reading the textbooks but I didn't understand a lot of it until I was forced to actually write out answers on an mm. exam and put in that situation. Like there, that pressure, once it's there and the incentive to actually retain it, it's amazing how much more of that textbook all of a sudden I would retain. Absolutely. Absolutely. So obviously your first qualification you just said there you did was your CF, that certified farrier, am I correct? Yeah, that's right. Yep. So what, obviously, there's a test at the end of that. Um, yes. So what, obviously, was a practical, is there a theory test as well? Yes. So what level and what's entailed in them te tests? Just to So now it, the theory portion has just been changed. They updated it to um, some of the answers were from older textbooks and, and older information, basically. But um, yeah, there's a there was a theory test. Then the and then you have to get a certain score. And I'm I apologize, I don't remember the exact details of that. But then you also had a shoe board where you had to demonstrate a certain number of of modifications they could be keg shoes um all except one was a bar shoe that those uh that had to match the patterns that you're matching the other shoes to right and then so with that you would present your shoe board the examiners would go through those and then show you which ones you needed to improve or or you you could pass them and that process alone changed my day-to-day -day shoeing incredibly mm. like modifying keg shoes there's so many situations where just a little tweak here and there and then i actually knew how to do it yeah. and <laughs> so with that then they give you one of the modifications and you have and a pattern and you have i think 30 minutes to do the modification and fit the keg shoe to that pattern yeah. And then for the practical exam, the other portion of it is you have a horse and you have to trim its front feet and fit them with keg shoes and they could be non clipped. Um, you can do handmaids if you want. And if you 
want, you can actually clip them. I did because in my day-to-day practice, I always use clips. So I struggled without. And uh, yeah, then they judge you on that as well. Cool. So moving on, is there a, how, how long is the sort of standard period of time before you can go on to do CJF then? You can literally attempt the CJF the next day if ah. you're comfortable enough to do it. So, um, yeah, you can do that. I, I don't know anybody who has, but yeah, there isn't a standard wait time. So your system. how does the practical exam, the CJF, differ from the CF then? So now you have a whole horse. You have to do it in plain stamped shoes, handmaids, and toe clip fronts, quarter clip tines. Right. And what's the time frame on that? I'm pretty sure it's two hours. Okay. Dead stop. Like, right. So, yeah, I mean, obviously the difference there, I mean, with the, the, the two British exam, the diploma exam, it's going to be concave, hand-fullered, or plain-stamped. Um, and it's nor- it, normally, on average, it's a concave on one, one f- on the front foot, for example, and a three-quarter-fullered hind or vice okay. versa. And again, obviously, all handmade, uh, clipped. There's, um, obviously, they do a shoeing plan at the start of it. Now, depending on the type of feet, I mean... There's not a lot of people, not a lot of situations in the UK where routine shoeing, you're not going to clip it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's pretty standard over there. I think, I mean, uh, and a lot of fa- a lot of farriers in the UK, I mean, again, going back to social media, we're seeing people putting shoeing jobs all over sort of Instagram, Facebook from loads of different countries. So it's always good to see. But, you know, you do see a lot of um, shoeing jobs coming from North America where there are no clips. And a lot of apprentices always say to me, why are these guys not clipping the shoes? And it's like, <laughs> when you've got feet that hard, <laughs> not really necessary. Unfortunately, in the UK with the environment, it's probably the same as parts of Canada as well. You yeah. know, them feet are not going to hold up to not having clips on them. Clips are there to try and take the pressure off the nails, and etc. cetera. Um, but yeah, so... You've got two hours to do a side of the horse, for want of a better word. Um, and a lot of people always go two whole hours to do half a horse. Uh, you know, that time is very tight. You know, seeing seeing the average person sitting there at that exam, they don't have a lot of spare time, you know, and some do run mm-hmm. out of time. But, you know, it's the whole shoemaking process. I mean, I dare say if they were fitting machine-made or keg shoes – um, they would do it a lot quicker and they'd probably shoe a horse all around a lot quicker than two hours every day when they're out at work with their masters. Uh, moving on to the AW exam or the associate exam. Um, and I, I must use the proper titles because Simon Curtis always shouts at me. <laughs> um, but yeah, moving on to that exam, it's the same again, two hours to shoe a side of a horse, but you're fitting two variants of bar shoes. Mm-hmm. So again, there's a shoeing plan involved and depending on the foot and the size horse and everything else to do with that foot, you've got, you've got to add a certain amount of variance. So if, you know, a clip is a variant, so you've got to choose whether to put a toe clip, side clips, roll toe, set toe, all that kind of stuff. And I think um, one of the shoes has to have an extra variant. So that might be a lateral extension. It could be a front plate. It could be, 
loads of different, you know, we see all these weird and wonderful bar shoes, but, you know, it could be graduated, could have a wide bar, you know, there's lots of different stuff. But again, that exam is very difficult. And I think what a lot of people going for their AWCF exam struggle with is by the time they get around to doing it in some cases, it's a long time since they've done their diploma exam and that whole exam technique, if they were taught it back then, they've since forgotten it and it's getting back Mm. into that mindset. You know, I I mean, for anyone out there who's, you know, completes their entrance exam, if you like, like the diploma, I would say don't leave it too long before moving up the ladder because... Yeah, there's something to the momentum. Mm, Absolutely. Uh, Yeah. And it was funny, there was um, obviously at the moment with um, the lockdown and... The, there's a few problems at the army school of Farry um, with the building at the moment. So the last lot of higher exams in the United Kingdom, we actually hosted at the um, school of Farry in Hereford. And it was interesting. It was the first time I'd actually seen the associate exam for quite a few years. Um, but it was interesting that of the 10 or so guys attempting it, one of the biggest things watching it was the lack of exam technique they yeah. had you know, and they were not efficient. They were wasting time. They didn't set themselves up right from the start with enough information. And it was two of my ex-students who probably qualified in the last three years. Um, and again, it's it, anyone who's ever been taught by me, it's the one thing I do constantly bang on about is exam technique and efficiency. They were the only two I really witnessed who had a plan. Hmm. You know, it was like, the rest just like when they said go, they just dived on in there and just kept going until they said stop, you know, it was, <laughs> but you know, and it's all part of the learning curve, isn't it? It's, it's for sure, a, you know, and that kind of planning, you know, that goes into future life and just a day-to-day living really. So, so well, yeah. And that's a, a pretty good segue. Anybody who's ever worked with me, once I started doing the exams, even though um, the fit would be very different, from what they required with the AFA to what my daily shoeing is, I would approach each horse like I was doing an exam. Mm. And I think like when the wheels fall off your wagon and you're under that stress of an exam, you're going to go back to your muscle memory in a lot of cases. So if you make that muscle memory, your day-to-day thing, you're, you're going to do it like without even thinking about it. Like sometimes when the exam's done and they call stop, you don't even know what happened. You just mm. you're standing there staring at a horse that has shoes on it that you supposedly put on them. <laughs> and yeah, it just I think that is a good way to keep yourself constantly prepped for it. Yeah, I mean, and and that like, again, like you said, the sort of the whole muscle memory thing. I mean, I, I remember having spent such a long time shoeing horses in the army, which is you're shoeing horses in like the perfect horse shoeing environment with perfect horses, which stand and do, you know, got great manners. You've got the perfect workshop. They're all in the workshop on a nice wooden floor. And it's, it's absolutely fantastic. And you've got plenty of time to shoe that horse because, you know, there's not that many horses, 
um, compared with a number of farriers. So again, we put a lot of handmaids on. We did everything correctly. And woe betide you if you didn't, because someone higher up the rank structure would probably notice it and you was going to be, you know, <laughs> you, you was going to cop one up the back of the head. But mm-hmm. I know when I left the army and, you know, it's a different shearing environment, you know, and people are trying to do more numbers. You're working on your own. And, you know, some people are shearing horses fast you know and the only way to do that technically is by cutting corners mm-hmm. and then you, as soon as you start cutting one or two corners yes you're making your life a little bit easier which then forms habit and before you know it, you're cutting too many corners and your overall standard of of finished product is falling through the floor and there's, there's been a few times over my career where i'm not I'm not ashamed to say well i've had to have a serious chat with myself Go mm. back to basics and rebuild, you know. Yeah. But I yep. suppose the tr- the trouble is not everyone recognises that, and it's just as each year goes on, the standard drops. I mean, it is a very very small minority, and I'm sure it's the same in every country, mm-hmm. you know. So For I- sure, but it's it's a slippery slope, like you say, because you you cut a corner and you get away with it. You come back you still retain that client. You're still shooing that horse and its feet didn't completely fall apart, but it's just not that standard that you started at. Exactly. And then it, as you get away with it, you just keep repeating it. Um, so obviously you, you kind of touched on this earlier. So if I lived in North America and I had no farrier education at all and decided that I want to do that, Technically, with no training, I could just buy a rig and just set up shoeing horses. Yes, you could. Do a lot of people go down that route? So I I was thinking about this when you talked, when we talked about doing this episode. And I think, and I could be really thinking too hard about this, but a lot of people who came over to North America from Europe, like that's a lot of people here. That's where they originated from in their ancestry. They left a world of regulations and what they considered oppression and then entered this free new world. Right. And I think some of that, like, I bet you if you did a poll of North American farriers, a lot of them are very libertarian minded. They, they don't want oversight. They don't want people telling them how and what to do. And so you're basically this farrier industry is like a free market. And sure, you can start with no knowledge or anything and just buy the tools and start out. But your work is going to like if you lame enough horses, nobody's going to hire you. Mm. It just now some people what you often find is people learn just enough. And I shouldn't say often fine, but sometimes people will learn just enough to be dangerous. And I've been told that by them and they'll go out and start chewing and they won't. They'll shoe a certain level of clientele and and horses and be able to charge a certain amount, but that's kind of the level they will stay at unless they, on their own, decide to pursue further education or certifications and stuff like that. Mm. But, hey, I mean, the same 
issues that you guys have there where horse owners aren't really aware of much, basically the most competent person can convince them that they are the best shoer. Yeah. And, and you, as a shoer, you can fall into that trap too. Like if you're in an isolated area and everybody loves you, you think you're doing a great job until you go to a competition or an exam and realize, holy, I'm not a shoeing God at all. No, I mean, again, it, it, I, I think it will be the same. I mean, obviously, bit, being a bit sort of well-traveled and having spoken to farriers around the world, you know, I think this is a common occurrence in whatever country you are working in. You know, there's good farriers, there's bad farriers, and there's successful farriers. And a lot of the successful farriers are not so good farriers who, you know, have just got the gift of the gab, you know, yep. probably make a very good used car salesman, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, we've all seen it. Um, and again, what you, what you're dealing with is it's like a used car. sale. most people buying a car don't know that much about a car, you know, and I think that's, just, <laughs> yeah. that's the same with uh, some, I mean, some horse owners. And, and again, with um, social media, there's a, there's a lot of so-called education out there, which, you know, horse owners, and I, I dare say it's the same in, in Canada and North America, where if their horse has a problem, they Google it and um, yep. Dr. Google will tell them what to do. And, and sometimes even if the farrier has pointed out that the horse has got a problem, when you finally go out there to see the horse, they've already Googled it and that they know what the shoeing plan needs to be. And it's not the one you probably think's best for it. So, <laughs> yep. So yeah, no, that's definitely a thing. And it, when you touched on education there, that's another unique thing here and maybe in other parts of the world where they don't have a, a proper body governing body overlooking things, but you can go and take a weekend course and be a barefoot trimmer. You can take a six to eight week course and some of the schools, that's a really intensive course that you actually do come out of knowing a considerable amount. They would, the schools usually recommend that you still go and apprentice with somebody, but you have a a foundation and I've heard of other schools where that six to eight week course, you're actually being taught by the students who were in the course previous to that. And you're just basically helping that school shoe horses. And that's how they, the school makes its money basically. Mm. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, there are varying degrees and I'm, those are a minority. There are a lot of good schools all over North America and that's the thing. There is no governing body on the education itself. So any farrier here can, after he's decided to, that he's reached whatever level, even if he doesn't have any certifications, he can decide to become a school Mm -hmm. or a, a teacher basically. And then you get a group of farriers who come up under that person who may or may not have the actual proper knowledge to to do the appropriate job for the horse i mean i know in the uk i mean including the the army school there's there's four schools of farrier in the united kingdom um i've worked at three of them 
throughout my career now. Um, and I'd pretty much say that regardless of what school you go to, the syllabus is all the same. Because let's face it, the endpoint assessment for everyone is the diploma in the worshipful company of Farriers. So the syllabus is pretty much based against their syllabus. And there will be a few extra bits um, in there as well. Um, and again, that kind of gets tweaked from time to time because obviously the science and research going into Farriers a lot more now than it ever used to be. But mm-hmm. obviously, if anyone reads the American Farriers Journal... Uh, in this country you know it becomes apparent that there's lots of different shearing schools offering very different courses and stuff in in north america i mean are their syllabuses roughly the same or do they a lot of them just go down very radically different paths uh it can be yeah it can be very different um some of them i think a lot of them use the same textbooks and there are kind of two main ones that get used here, either Doug Butler's or Chris Gregory's. And I haven't heard of any that actually use Simon Curtis's, although it's recommended reading mm. um, as their actual syllabus. But yeah, I've had people helping me out who've been graduates of several different schools. And it is incredible how they might have taken the same length of course, but their knowledge base is drastically different. Mm. Drastically. Yeah. yeah, I mean, but and again, I suppose, I mean, one thing I'll, I will say sort of like over here, you know, depending, because of course over here we have like a four-year apprenticeship. They come to us for approximately, it does differ in the different years, but for approximately three weeks every two months, the rest of the time, they've got an apprenticeship with a master farrier and they are sort of being taught to shoe horses by that master farrier. Now, you know, human nature, some of those students, and again, age plays a big part in this as well, but then also there's personality. Some of these students, uh, you know, when they're not at work, they're either in the forge or they've got their heads in their books. Some of them, it just because they're that age as well, you know, they've got a bit of money in their pocket and when they're not working hard shoeing horses, they just want to party and have mm. a good time and grow up and all that stuff. So we have quite a diverse mix. And even though the training system, they're all going through the same training system, what one person knows over another person, there is quite a varied um, sort of selection there. I mean, I, from my point of view, towards the end of the apprenticeship, where we're trying to polish them and get them ready for their diplo- diploma exam, you know, some will sail through and they just need a bit of guidance. Some, it's almost like you're trying to compress four years into. <laughs> but, I mean, I think one thing I am finding these days, those cases from when I first started teaching to those cases now are a lot less. You know, I know people, people, and I hate the term myself, um, but I know people give this sort of millennial generation a very hard time or our generation certainly does because they're different but there are a lot of very good positives to the way they actually engage and behave in a lot of stuff i mean you're still going to get you know someone who's a little bit more immature who's taking a little bit more time to mature before they start taking it seriously but then you know i think your age you started isn't you know, it's upper end of, I think, the perfect age because you've, start, you've 
would be mature by that time, but you're not. Well, well, well you know, <laughs> it's a barrier thing. But in the same breath, I've had problems with older students than that age or 30 plus where because they've had a bit of a life and they've had several different jobs, they've formed their own opinion on life in general. Yeah, yeah. And they, for me, have always probably been the hardest ones to teach Hmm. because for every snippet of information you give them, they come back with a question challenging it, even though they don't know the answer. (laughs) You know, it's like, you know, you tend to be saying, well, why are we doing that? Well, because I told you to do it. So then you end up <laughs> wasting wasting loads of time where you could be giving them valid information, then explaining why you've told them to do that. And it's just, yeah, I do find them, you, you are dealing with a lot of, um, yeah, um, opinions and bad habits as well, you know. You know yeah, bad habits and those are hard to break. Well, especially bad habits when it comes to learning and just mm-hmm. general personality and lifestyle, you know, it is very, very difficult. Um, so obviously this thing in North America, um, and I know, forgive me if I'm wrong, but certain parts of Canada are discussing whether to have regulations or not. Yeah. So I actually called a friend out West Russell um, he, Russell Floyd, who was on the podcast, he was involved. He, he's not as involved in it now, but he was quite involved in the process of trying to get it regulated. One of the things that has come up a few times is the veterinary, uh, like veterinary groups have basically approached governments. And I've heard this happening in Canada and the U.S. where they want to basically oversee us so they would give the the um basically give the shoeing plan to us and we would have to to do what they say and under their guidance and i mean we would lose complete control so Mm. uh, i think that was incentive enough for a lot of people to look into this regulation issue so Russell said, I mean, he, he gave a lot of details and, and he said, but the, the main problem with Canada is we just don't have enough farriers that like the government has much bigger fish to fry mm. and you have other red seal trades that have thousands and thousands of members so that when each one gives their professional fee each year, that's enough to actually pay the body the governing body that's going to look over them and and help with training and all of those things where there just aren't enough farriers to finance that kind of thing and the government's not going to put money into it when it isn't really affecting that many people and i mean a lot of it is about uh lawsuits like just the discussion we had before where sometimes uh somebody does something wrong or or even it's a mistake that they had nothing to do with and a, a client sues or, or whatever. Um, if that happened enough here, I think it would be an issue, but it, most of those cases haven't really, it just, mm-hmm. it hasn't happened enough. I mean, I think, I mean, 
although I wasn't around back then, I think, I mean, our, our, our registration act basically came, obviously they started asking this question back in the 60s in the UK. Um, and our, it took up until sort of like 74 to 77 to actually roll this out in the United Kingdom. But the main reason it got rolled out in the United Kingdom, and it wasn't to say there wasn't some good farriers, but majority of farriery in the UK at that time was of very, very poor. And I think it was at that time, the good people, I don't know whether it was ever threatened because I've not spoke to anyone about it to kind of go down that veterinary route or not, but you know, something needed to be done. And again, I think it's a case of either as an industry, you take it by the, by the horns and you take control of it and you govern that and you have your input or you just wait for someone else to take it on. And that's when Mm -hmm. problems will start. So yeah, I mean, that's quite sure. interesting. I mean, and again, you know, the, I suppose where it's different now, again, we, the standard had slipped in this country overall. Um, a lot of that was because obviously we'd had mechanization. We'd come out of the second world war. Horses were all of a sudden just purely for leisure. There wasn't a lot of money in the country. So the horse numbers dropped a lot of the old proper trained farriers who kind of, have trained with someone who's trained with someone who's trained with someone that all kind of died a death. And, you know, there was a severe lack and as financially things got better in the sort of sixties, et cetera, I guess the horse numbers started to go up and there just wasn't enough people. So again, untrained people were, you know, and again, people trained by untrained people, mm-hmm. or, yeah. you know, it, it becomes, you know, and again, I've noticed it, you know, not individually calling her out, but again, there was a lot of grandfather rights went on back in the 70s and the early 80s, which is fine. But if you get someone who's got grandfather rights, who in their own wasn't very good, who then is now training for new wave of apprentices, and then they, you know, so they qualify and they're not as good as they could be. And then they take on an apprentice. And so sometimes you do get these bloodlines and you can kind of trace back mm-hmm. where the original problem started, um, which is, you know, it's just, I think as you get older and you start looking at things, you you can kind of picture, uh, piece these things together. But I think the uh, problem nowadays, though, like, like I say with North America, is the fact that I don't know what the ratios to good and bad farriers are. Um, which I should imagine it's a minority as opposed to a majority. But, you know, a lot of people, even the uneducated, probably a lot more educated than the uneducated were back in the 60s because they didn't have Facebook. And mm-hmm. they, they, didn't have YouTube, they didn't have YouTube and Craig Trinker. And, yeah. you know, <laughs> I think, you know, I think a lot of us now are spoiled. I mean, again, there wasn't any online courses, which seems to be a thing which is popping up a lot now, which... I guess has come out of like we were saying earlier with, um, you know, education going online and we've now got the tools um, to to sort of teach people overseas remotely to a degree, Mm -hmm. certainly on the theoretical side. Um, So, you know, I don't know how that's going to affect any kind of uh, legislation going on in, in the Canada or the United States. I mean, I don't know. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and one other thing I should say is even though the the government hasn't really like that route wasn't 
an option or doesn't seem to be right now. Out West, they are still working on an apprenticeship program where they contacted other associations throughout Canada. And they're trying to create at least almost like a, an exchange within Canada where you could work with different farriers of a certain standard and then at least have that as your foundation before you start. Mm. Once again, there's still no, uh, it's not mandatory. It's just, if you're that type of person who wants to, to do that kind of work and that kind of education, then you, it, the option will be there. So it is kind of interesting that there are people who are working towards that. And I, I've thought a lot about when I talked to Peter Arento and I'd asked him about that contentious issue here mm. and you bring it up, should we have a, an actual governing body and, and do it the same way that you guys do over there? And he said, you know, we want to be treated like professionals and paid like professionals but we don't want to do the education and we don't want to pay the fees. Yeah. And to, to the, the funny thing is, and that's kind of something I've said quite a bit over the last few years, you know, it's you get farriers in the United Kingdom, they qualify. The first thing they do is change their name on Facebook to Joe Bloggs, Dip WCF. Because mm -hmm. they're like, I've got letters after my name get me and you know and again they want to be respected by vets they want to be respected by horse owners but then on that same facebook page you know they're they're kind of putting sort of videos of their um escapades at the weekend um <laughs> you know and it's it's that difference between you know i've as I said, you don't get school teachers, well, maybe not school teachers, but you certainly don't get doctors and high court judges posting their drunkard exploits at the weekend on their Facebook. In fact, most yeah. of them are probably not even on Facebook. But, you know, it's kind of, yeah, there is a difference there. You know, they want to sort of have the kind of the, the um, respect of a professional, but they want to behave like a labourer, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and again, it's a small minority, you know, um, it's not everybody, but again, I think I've, my, my own view on things has changed a lot in the last or like six, six to 10 years. When I wake up every morning and I go onto Facebook and I look at my memories of what I was doing 10 years ago, and what <laughs> I was posting on Facebook, I'm like, Ooh, yep. Hope no one looks that far back. <laughs> well, um, at the time you didn't, you didn't foresee that. Oh, wait a second. This is a permanent record. Well, and I, 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 and I think back then, you know, social attitudes, the amounts of people who were on Facebook and using social media was a lot less as well. Yeah, but, for sure. You know, I think we've all learned a lot by making mistakes on it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, um, yeah, it's, 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 quite interesting so just sort of like while we're talking about qualifications obviously there's different routes in if you actually choose to take a route in you could just start by the necessary equipment um what is the balance of respect sort of between sort of horse owners and other equine professionals with people and their qualifications you know is i know in the uk Again, it's assumed that all farriers are registered. And I know there are some illegal, unregistered farriers out there shooting. 
I've got to say, I don't think there's many, if at all, in my area. And I don't think it's a massive problem in the United Kingdom. It always seems to be the same couple of people getting caught. Um, <laughs> but obviously, most most um, people out there assume that the farrier's qualified. Some people recognise the fact that their farrier's actually got higher qualifications. Some are bothered by it some are not bothered by it but how's it in north america i mean do, do people generally you know if you have gone to the time to get your certifications and your journeyman etc are they a lot more um uh I'm trying to think of the word appreciative of it do they tend to give you a bit more respect how does that work uh not at all well i, can, I shouldn't <laughs> say not at all but most of them aren't aware that you even have a i think they just assume maybe that it's the same as in england they don't realize that it's just uh, a free-for-all in in many aspects so it's almost your job to educate them on it mm. as to what you're doing and not in a boastful egotistical way it, like it's it's interesting i i've even talked to vets about it and they had no idea what a cjf meant mm. I had one vet say, well, no, you're not going to do well because of that. You'll do well because you're nice. And, <laughs> and that was it. And so I think amongst farriers, it gets you more clout. Yeah. Like there, they know how difficult it is to get those certain, um, certain credentials. And they either are working towards it themselves or have chosen not to. And, and for various reasons, like I've often heard the argument for the AFA exam that, well, how could you do that? Like that's so fast. Why should you have to do it in that kind of time frame? Mm. And I've said, if I could do it because I'm, I was one of the slowest forgers I knew if I can with enough practice and work past that exam, I think anybody can. They just have to really want to, to do it. And I should explain, there are two, maybe three associations with Chris's that offer exams here. And there might be more that I'm not aware of, but um, the International Association of Professional Farriers, they kind of took a different approach than the American Association. Right. And they have, theirs is less forging based. So I'm sure you don't have the division there because everybody does start with the same foundation of having to learn to forge. But we, we have two camps here, it seems, where you have the hammerheads and you have the grindersmiths. Mm. And there are very few people who are in the middle of that, um, on that spectrum. And I've kind of, ridden that middle to varying degrees throughout my career and so the hammerheads typically go the afa route and the grindersmiths tend to go the international association of professional farriers route where they they have an open book test um and now they're actually starting to offer credentialing for specific types of shoeing um and or for different disciplines and but it's still i mean there's some forging in it but it's it's not as intensive as 
say the AFA, but mm-hmm. they, they picked up on each other's weaknesses. So now the IAPF, they have continuing education credits where a big argument with the AFA that people have had was that you could become a CJF and never have to attend another clinic or any continuing education after that. There's no requirement for it. Mm. So now it seems like the two associations are starting to work together. Uh, Travis, Travis Burns talked about that, about when he was on, when he was the president and they actually started working together. And, and I hope to see more of that. I think if you can bring both camps together, that would be better. But I, I have to say from personal experience, if, if you could at least approach the hammerhead style of doing things and learn those forging skills, I know it's easy to say, well, hey, I'm, I'm making money, I'm doing a good job, and, and my clients love me. But if you learn those forging skills and then see that there's more to learn about those forging skills, and that, that goes on forever, there are so many. And it, as you go on, it's the subtleties that become what you have to focus on and work on and your eye gets trained to look at things even more specifically your job will change and um your horse's feet will improve i saw it happen i mean it's um again in the united kingdom i mean i think because of social media I think a lot more farriers, once qualifying, are picking the hammer back up. I know there used to always be a thing when I, when I some of my early days of teaching, we get you'd get towards the end of the apprenticeship and you, you you'd have students go, well, if I pass this exam next week, I'm selling all my shoemaking kit. I'm never going to make another shoe as long as I live. <laughs> you know, and you're like, well, you know, good luck with that. But you know sucky attitude but what you're seeing now is some of those people who said that with some of the online shoeing competitions like forge wars things like that and you know just people posting pictures on various platforms instagram facebook and every now and again this person who swore blind that he'd never ever pick a turn and hammer up again as long as he lives and was going to get through life with a pair of tongs a back ritual and a a ball paint hammer um all of a sudden they've started making shoes you mm-hmm. know and i find that's quite interesting because i think one thing social media has done to a lot of people is people have looked at what is going on out there and they're, they're all of a sudden feeling a little bit behind the curve yeah and it's they, some uh, social they, pressure yeah exactly and they, they want to join back in i mean we had our um um, governing body and the National Association um, have a sort of biannual magazine which comes out. And one of one of the readers' letters in there uh, this year, again, not mentioning any names, um, sort of again asked a question of why are the apprentices still having to make horseshoes when most people don't use um, handmade shoes? Blah blah blah. And I, I, you know, I think anyone who knows the backstory there probably understands why that letter came out but there are some people out there who do ask that question and i 
you know, for someone who actually has always enjoyed the shoemaking and has probably actually enjoyed the shoemaking more than actual shoeing horses. Um, so, <laughs> but, you know, it's, um, it is a skill and it does help you. And again, the situations, and don't get me wrong, there are some very, very good keg shoes or machine-made shoes out there these days and lots of things we can weld to it and adapt. But if you can't forge... Some of the a lot of the problems and slight adjustments we need to make to those shoes now um, to give the horse better support or keep them on the road, you know, for want of a better word, you know, you need those basic fundamental forging skills to be able to do that. And all those fundamental basic forging skills exist in shoemaking. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Simple, you know, yeah. I understood more about the intricacies of the keg shoes by mm. learning how to make one. Like there were things that I didn't even look for even in between the different makes of keg shoes. Like then you start to learn that, Oh wait, these nails are pitched differently in mm. this particular brand, or there's a bolder toe on this one. I wouldn't have even seen that before. And I, I do want to add the caveat here that there are lots of grinder smiths or keg shoers out there who are very skilled and do an excellent job. It's just, I think for everybody learning those other fundamentals, even if you have to like do it in your shop later without people knowing that you're, you're learning that, that skill, you're going to your day-to-day job is going to get better it can't help but get better yeah. i mean talking about um, social media and sort of just to name drop someone a little bit there's a um, guy in the uk a guy called peter Piers. now if you look at his instagram and he is producing some uh, really really nice fabricated work you know with different welded on sort of rails graduations and all you know every day i, I, look, I look at his work and i think well i you know i i love my shoemaking but you know he, he's just i i know if i stop start welding inserts in and doing going down that route it's functional, but it don't look nice. But the stuff, <laughs> stuff he's yep. producing, it, it, some of it looks space age, but it's just, it's perfection. It's, it's amazing stuff to look at. And you can see, you can kind of understand the mechanics behind it as well. But I know, and a lot of people who probably don't know, probably think, oh yeah, see, you don't need to be able to make shoes. But I know back when Peter was an apprentice and newly qualified, he was doing very well at shoeing competitions. You know, and I know he can also make really nice shoes. Yeah. You know, yeah. just ordinary handmade shoes. So he's got, that's where that skill came from. And you can't do one without having the other, which, mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, you know, one of the most ridiculous shoes on the planet, which you always see on social media. You see people putting them on why I don't know. And you always see them at contests and stuff. Is the, is the traditional British roadster shoe. Mm-hmm. And you, my old boss always said to me, you know, there is no place for this shoe anymore. We don't have cobbled streets, you know, and that's what it was designed for. And horses generally are, we've got motor cars anymore. We've got, we've got a combustion engine. We don't need that. But what he did say is every single forging technique you need to know to be a farrier is in that shoe. In one shoe. Yeah. You know, without, without fire welding, jumping, drawing, setting, punching, it's all in that one shoe. And it is a forging that is a forging test, that shoe. 
Yeah. And, and I think it's still an important one. Although we don't teach this as part of the syllabus, it is an exercise I often do with students. Because mm-hmm. if you can make those look nice and functional, then you're pretty much going to be able to make anything. You know, so it's, um, yeah, it's, but again, we, we, I think sometimes people get a little bit confused by things like that into whether there is a real time application for such stuff. And, you know, it's a training thing. Yeah. Well, and in that argument has come up a lot when I've heard people sort of put down attempting the FA exams, they'll say, well, those shoeing modifications are never something I'll use or that particular fit. Like I don't shoe quarter horses, so I'm never going to shoe a horse that way or shoe a horse in plain stamps. Well, that isn't the point. It's shoeing to a prescription. Mm. And we all will have to do that at some point when we're working with a, a vet or um, trying to work on something specific where if you learn to shoe to a prescription, then you start to learn to shoot other prescriptions that might be required. Mm. So it's like you said, that just like a roadster, you're doing an exercise. It's not that you're going to use those in your day to day necessarily. You might not ever forge weld another bar shoe in your life. You'll buy them from the store, but you'll know how to shape them Mm. properly. Absolutely. I mean, just, I mean, again, one phenomenon I've noticed in the United Kingdom over the last few years, uh, over the, back when I was in the armed forces uh, at the army school, again, like I said, they always did the higher exams there. You know, each year, sometimes numbers are up, sometimes numbers, but it was a slow trickle of people going through the associate of the Worshipful Company of Farrows exam. And then they brought in... Um, a few years back that if you wanted to take on apprentices and become an approved training farrier, then, you know, they were looking into obviously again, some people got grandfather rights, but they were saying all new people applying, you need to be, you either need to have your associate or one of the um, um, similar higher qualifications. So again, there was this massive rush of people coming through doing their associate exams. Some of those got the bug, went on to do their fellowship with the Worshipful Company of Farrows exam. So there's been quite a big uptake in uh, fellows over the last few years as well. Um, One thing I have noticed, since that number's kind of sort of started to stall, the numbers, because of that reason, but there's still quite a strong number of people. And what I'm noticing now is people in areas, because the farrier down the road has now got his associate, they don't want to be left out or mm-hmm. left behind. So there's a lot of people now just, they don't need to do it sort of career wise, but they're doing it because they don't want to that guy to be better than them. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Um, but again, the other phenomena I've seen is, and I see it time and time and anyone listening to this, you probably know who you are do something about it. Um, but, <laughs> but you know, you do see a lot of people publicly like throwing down the gauntlet. They'll go into a forge, they'll make a bar shoe, right, that's it, I'm, I'm going to do my associate, I'm going to start training towards it. You know, five years later, they've still not got there or even sat it, you know, but it was almost like, yeah. if I tell everyone that I'm going to do it, it's as good as doing it and it's, yep. it's not. Yeah. You, you need to kind of get on that crazy train, which is education and become better because of it. So, yeah. 
Well, and that's something with the podcast I've really tried to push. If people would attempt those exams and I just, I saw the benefits for myself. I came from the other side of it. And once I did that, uh, there are so many benefits to doing it that I could not understand why I wouldn't. Mm. And yeah, I was one of those people who was doing well without it, but man, did it change my life once Mm. I gone through the process. So my plan was to do some kind of a campaign with the podcast to see how many people I could get to kind of sign up for clinics or, or, or actual exams, but then COVID hit and I didn't think I should encourage people to be hanging out together. Well, (laughs) I'm sure it will go back to normal eventually, but just obviously getting to the end of this subject now, but just out of interest, obviously not often you get to sit on the the other side of the microphone. What, um, from my own curiosity, what actually pushed you down the line of actually doing your podcast? Well, so I had the sound and lighting background and I'd started listening to Farrier podcast because I mean, we're driving in trucks a lot in North America. There's a lot of time spent there and I just, I I enjoyed the podcast that I was listening to the farrier ones that were there, but I really, I've always been really interested in the deeper stories mm. with people. And like, I, I like the takeaway knowledge, the, the lessons that you can learn from those people, but I also just want to know what makes them tick. And you, you can't really get there by just asking the same set of questions and, and like a, a standard, uh, I don't know, but just kind of doing a formula and then just going with it. It's through just like you do on your podcast where you just have a conversation mm. with those people. Right. And you have a, a sort of a format or uh, a set of things you do want to touch on but you're willing to sit there and go, Oh, like you're flexible enough that, Oh, Hey, wait, this is a topic. We should just kind of Mm. let's take this side street. It's it's organic, isn't it? I mean, I know, I mean, I first got into podcasts myself, obviously again, long drives down to Hereford um, early hours of the morning. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I never, never even looked into the fact that there might be some farrier ones out there. Um, I was sort of generally listening to music based ones and mountain biking, just things, subjects I was of sort of hobbies really into that kind of stuff. And I'd always, when I was looking through what to listen to, I'd, I'd actually, because the journey was two and a half hours, I actually, <laughs> I was always drawn towards the longer ones because mm-hmm. but I didn't have to go and find another one. So, and then when I got into sort of, uh, of one popped up on Facebook. I was like, and when I got into the Farrery-related uh, ones, a lot of those are not that long. Um, mm-hmm. And then, again, I saw the link for the Mullins one and straight away saw that they were a lot longer. I thought, yep, these are ones for me. <laughs> but, yeah, so, but, you know, I think a lot of interviews have been done in the past talking to Farriers like the great and the good, you know, uh, again, nothing against anyone, but like, you know, you, you grow up moons, you create drinkers, you know, pe- we all know them. And actually, you know, 
listening to a podcast on a farrier but you know nothing about that's that's the story because mm-hmm. you know it's it's interesting it's interesting to see what got them into it you know problems they had things which or eureka moments they've had you know it's um yeah i think although it's not necessary um mapped out or like specific learning subjects but we've all got that something to give you know mm-hmm. I, I i think that's really 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 important you know and you know like you've said before there isn't many farrier based uh podcasts out there um no. well it was you me simon curtis um the doug butler school mm-hmm. um farrier focus one uh, I think the AFA did a few, didn't they? I think so. Yeah, the AFJ um, has one. Mm, so, but again, the, there's not that many out there. But like, like everything, you know. I think I was talking to Grant Moon once, and he said, "Actually, when you look around the world, there's probably only sixty thousand farriers, you know, in the developed world, which we are a very, very small minority, you know." So, it's, but yeah, it's. There is, a, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, but there is this kind of shared thing, like just what I was talking about and you and I have talked about where people help each other out when they get hurt and stuff like that. I think even throughout the world, this technology with the podcasts and Facebook and social media, you have all these people who were kind of isolated before are now part of this brother and sisterhood throughout the world, right? Like I, yeah. I'm sure you, you can look at the um, basically the, the stats on your podcast and find out that there are people listening to you from Holland and um, yes. Denmark. That's, and- that's the incredible thing. And I was talking to this, someone about this the other day. I mean, I'd probably say probably around 50% of my listeners uh uk based then you've got another large percentage which is north american usa mm-hmm. and canada but then it's the small like the very small minorities i mean there's quite a few in australia but then you start getting the european countries which then you've got you've got language barriers then so yeah so right, you've covered the english speaking parts of the empire <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, but then, then you've got the, um, the, um, you know, the other countries, but it's all, it's those small numbers. I love trawling through those, just seeing where, you know, was Iran, Iraq, Argentina, you know, it was all these obscure countries and you think, crikey, that's, yeah. you know, that's some reach, you know? Yeah. And so I always find it really, really interesting. Right. We've pretty much got to the back of that, um, that subject and everything. I really, really appreciate you coming on. I've got a bit of a treat for you. <laughs> I've got a treat for you because yeah. obviously one of the highlights obviously of your your podcast is the part you call the strap tech turnum oh shoot yeah um and I, i'm not I'm, i've not warned you now I, I had noticed that you've recently changed some of the questions and yep. ne- obviously you never got to answer the old questions <laughs> so um yeah we're gonna do the strap tech tour with you so oh, wow okay so get this Never, I bet you never thought this was going to happen. Right. <laughs> no, I, I didn't know this was coming. This portion of the podcast is called the Stratum Tectorium. 
These are the short answer, surface stuff questions. But it's okay if the guest wants to go deeper. Enjoy. So first of all, Ben, favorite book if you've got one? Um, so if it's textbook, there are too many fairy textbooks to name, but Gregory's and Simon Curtis, both of theirs. Um, and then actual book, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. That was a huge one for me. I'll take it you're big into your motorbikes then. <laughs> uh, I, you'd think I was. I'm not. I'm more of a pedal bike guy. Okay. Fantastic. Yeah. So but it, it's a philosophy book more than. All right. Okay. Yeah. So um, favorite brand of work boot? Uh, right now, I'd have to say, oh, I got to think about this. Darn it. Um, well, Royer, which is a Canadian made one. And there's another one that I just cannot think of right now. But yeah, I'm wearing some Royer winter ones and uh, they're keeping my toes warm right now. So probably one of the most controversial um, questions in Farry, favorite rasp. Yeah. And nobody's ever answered with mine at the third hoof hobel, the rasp, uh, the plane rasp. Oh, the hoof plane. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I haven't seen any of those around for a long time. Um, I love them. They're more expensive. Um, once I started using them, I tried going back to other ones, and I just I don't know why. I've had bad batches of them, and mm. I've been quite disappointed, and that's usually when I try something else, and then I just keep going back to them. Well, I, I think, you know, again, listening to your podcast, that's one of the biggest, biggest things what comes up is the consistencies of rust. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think whether it is they've got that good that they are that affected by weather conditions and stuff. Um, I, I never mean, considered that. You know, I mean, I know, obviously, in the UK, which I imagine is very similar to parts of Canada, you know, we've got wet, muddy winters, we've got dry summers, but... And then mm. I know in the summer, the green tang hellas really, really good. You know, they seem very popular in there. And the blue tang seems to be better in the winter. But mm. I just, I find it very, very difficult because that kind of, you get used to that mirror finish of the green tang. And when the blue tang sort of like, sometimes the feet end up looking like that CD case behind you. Um <laughs> You know, but then I did think this year what I'd do is get blue tang, then get a sort of sort of finishing um, rasp to try and get that one on the finish. But then everywhere, every time I've nipped into the store, they've not had any blue tang, so I'm still using the green tangs and just having to unpick them after every else. But you know, it's still, <laughs> it's going to be summer in a couple of months. We'll be fine. Um, so then, favorite rounding hammer? Uh, I would have to say it's the the Derek Gardner. Okay. Popular choice. Popular mm. choice. Is that the old style one or the face weighted one though? Uh, the old style. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's um, I just think people went mad for face weighted hammers a few years ago and a lot of companies were changing them. And I know some people love a face weighted hammer and they seem to be like, but ridiculously face weighted, but I I've never been able to get on with that. Yeah, I've never actually tried one. Just, I think they're all right for like if you're doing a lot of real stretchy, forgy stuff. 
yeah, they're fine. Right. But when it comes to sort of intricate bending and coming in at angles, it just doesn't work for me. But, you know, each to their own. Dream mm-hmm. Farrier rig. Uh, I think I have it. I've got a, a 3500 GMC. So it's got the dual wheels at the back. And I've got a bay horse body on it. It's an eight foot wide, um, eight foot bed. So it, there's lots of space back there. I've had trailers. I had a really good trailer. I still have it sitting out in the snow out here. Um, but I just, I really like working around a truck, especially when I'm working with somebody. Mm. You just, in the trailer, you're bumping into each other all the time. And um, whereas this, you can kind of work in your separate areas. Um, what size engine has that got of interest? Uh, so it's, that's a good question. Um, it's a diesel engine and I want to say it's like 6.2. I'll take it. Fuel's not so expensive in Canada. Not not as it is in Europe. No, (laughs) I think, I think, I think my, my van parked outside, it's got a 1.6 engine in it. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's really quick downhill. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) No, this thing can, uh, yeah, I can have the farrier trailer and the farrier box on the back. I look like I'm ready for war, um, but it, yeah, it's not greatly affected by that on hills. Oh, crikey. Um, favorite, favorite size of bar stock? Seven eighths by three eighths. And you, you even said it the right way around. Did I? Yes, you did. <laughs> Um, it's um, I say every time I listen to some, your podcast, you got someone. Um, I, I think this is the one big difference between either side of the Atlantic. Your side, they normally say three eighths by one, whereas we say inch three eight. It's just ah. tick, always always tickles me that. But yeah, well, I I worked alongside a, a gentleman, uh, Peter Rawlings from the UK, and. Uh, he I he might have just had that influence on me. I think that could be the case. Um, favorite pastime after work. Favorite pastime. Right now it's renovating. Okay. Renovating the interior of my house. Um, but uh yeah, music is another big one. Is that music listening, music playing? Uh it used to be music playing, mostly music listening right now, but yeah, uh I used to play. Quite a bit. Well, I say when you you're saying about sort of sound engineering and stuff like that, it's obvious that there was something. So, what did you used to play then? Uh, piano, guitar, drums. I've got an accordion sitting in front of me here. Uh, <laughs> a player of many, a master you, of none. You, yeah. So you you're one of them annoying people who can throw your hands at most things, obviously. Um, <coughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it's. Um, it's quite a common thing. There's quite a few farriers out there who play some kind of musical instrument, which is, it's, um, yeah, I, yeah I, I think. I don't know what the correlation is. But... The same place in our brains, I think. Yeah, either that or it's it's to do with, if you're playing a musical instrument, most most horse owners will leave you alone. Maybe, <laughs> I don't know. Well, that's what the accordion's for. Yeah, and um, if you play it loud enough, they can't hear the fa- you can't hear the phone ringing. So, um, next thing on the bucket list. Mm-hmm. Uh, my AW. 
Good I, answer. Well, the ASF and my AW. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, it, have you got? Have you got a group of you wanting to do that together? Or yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. There are two other farriers um, that I've been working alongside that who have both been guests on the podcast, Andrew DeVisser and, and Sarah Vanderpoel and the two of them, uh, there's I'm weaker than them definitely in the forge. And they have done incredible things for me with that. And hopefully I'm helping them a bit with the the theory side. So, and that, that, that is the way to do it. You know, I mean, anyone attempting it on their own, you're just making it a lot harder for yourself because yeah. it's all about working as a team strength and weaknesses. I mean, and it's funny, I know when people started going through the same um, f- thing in the UK a few years ago, because there was the National Association or the British Farriers and Blacksmiths Association were putting together these modular uh, courses for the associate. And, you know, I think the first few groups was a lot of guys who got together on that, you know, sort of six, seven years ago are still like became very good friends out of it, you know? So, oh yeah. You know, it's, sure. it is, it is good to have other people on that journey. Favorite brand of keg, or as we like to say in the United Kingdom, as this is a British um, podcast, you better call them machine made shoes. Um, yeah. But what's your favorite brand of machine made shoe? Uh, it, it's a toss up between the workman's and the Kirkheart DFs workman warriors and Kirkman or Kirkheart DFs. I use them both. Do you, mainly use free cut fullards in your business or do you use yes. concave at all or um i use a bit of concave uh but mostly almost all of my horses are on synthetic footing <coughs> and especially in the front end i don't want too much traction mm. so um and it, it, again funny in the uk but you know I mean, I grew up with a lot of flats still, um, but then leaving. Really? The yeah, well, that was because it was in the army. So, oh, okay, right. Yeah. Um, you know, and we was making a lot of handmaids back then. But obviously, the majority of people outside, it was all about the concave. But there seems to have been in the last of like four or five years a bit of a revolution where obviously ground reaction forces with arena surfaces and too much traction. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it's quite interesting, but how things have flipped back around the other way. Um, leather or synthetic pads? Leather, which is like probably the most common answer when I ask it. it absolutely, it's. Um, but again, I, w- I was talking in the group the other day, and I was talking about pads, and uh, most people were saying, you know, they, they were harping on about what pads, and they were going for more synthetic, sort of like um, ibex pads, things like that. And I, I'm still. I think the nearest I get to synthetics is using those fusion pads from Diplano, which I'll bet John Nunn's still not sent you. As he, he sure, sure hasn't. Well, you know, <laughs> I'm sure he'll listen to this again. And um, every time I talk to you, he messages me shortly thereafter, <laughs> asks for my address again, and then I, I wait. I, I think he needs to get some uh, limited editions of like maple leaf. Yeah. Once, you oh, know, yeah. Just, just to make up for this. But yeah, interesting. So, um, favorite type of horse to work on? Uh, a warm blood. They just, uh, for my, I'm pretty tall and a little bit lanky. Are you? How tall are you? Because I've always, in my head, and it's, it's by listening to your voice, I always assumed you were quite short. 
<laughs> that's hilarious. No, I'm about six foot, six foot one. In I didn't realize that. That surprised me. Yeah, um, so working under those guys, I find a lot easier. Yeah, I bet you do. Than, yeah. So, see, I, I think, I think your height thing, and I'm not going to lie, and this is not an insult. It's almost is like it my squeaky voice. Well, it's kind of got this like Yodaism about it. <laughs> and obviously, we all know like Yoda is quite vertically challenged. But um, right, yeah. yeah, so I, yeah, you learn something new every day. Ideal number go. of horses to shoe in one day. Uh, on my own, I would say three or four, and then with somebody, seven. Right. Um, favorite type of anvil. Emerson. I have a small one. I name all the anvils. So uh, the shop anvil, the 200-pounder the is Esmeralda, and then little Emma rides around with me in the truck. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> um, favorite drink? Uh, coffee. I, that seems to be everybody's answer. And yeah, I, I like coffee and uh, tequila. Well, you know, like, it's, fu it's funny, like, say about the coffee thing and, like, having listened to your podcast and all the, it, yeah, it is the sort of top drink, really. But I've, I think, I think your podcast needs to bring out, like, everyone's bringing out all these niche brands of coffees. I think you maybe you should bring out the Mullins podcast coffee or something. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's like the chaps are doing, like, Silverback is doing. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah. I, I think there's something in that. I think we should do it. So, <laughs> okay. um, podcast coffee. Um, favorite inspirational quote? Well, if I'd been prepared for this, I, I would have actually had one. Um, oh, man. It's all right if you stumble because it's the one question I didn't answer and yours neither. <laughs> that's yeah, that's true. Um, I can't. Can we circle back to that? Yes. I think about this. I'll, yeah. let you, I'll let you think about it. So if you'd not been a farrier, what do you think you'd be doing now? Uh, probably be working in sound engineering. Well, it's a good thing that you became a farrier because I don't think they're doing very much at the moment with the lot. No, <laughs> probably not. It's I've I always always had this thing of I wish I wish I'd become a roadie. Really? Yeah, because it's like you could just you know you just it'd be like being a rock star without being a rock star. It'd be great, but obviously yeah. I don't think any of them will work for the past year and a half. So um, yeah, so it'd obviously have to be a roadie for a decent band. Yeah, 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 but, for sure. Um, well, basically, that's I was a glorified roadie because I was setting up, tearing down, and running the equipment. So I just I did the job in between, but I was mostly a roadie. So, any for any <laughs> any anything famous? No, I I wouldn't say anybody too crazy famous. What uh, I was at, I did, um, not the sound, but just like teardowns and stuff for some famous folks. But yeah, I. Uh, name dropping wouldn't be really <laughs> well and let's face it nine times out of ten they always say never meet your heroes anyway do they so yeah that's true too oh yeah so i was able to, um to not wanting to name drop but i can remember when i was an apprentice in the army um stationed over in germany and uh, when I used to come home on leave and go stay at my parents' place, the farrier in my village who I'd kind of grown up with, he, um, Paul McCartney from the Beatles fame, yeah. lived, in, lived in the next village. And this farrier 
who my mum was his secretary. Um, his name was Paul as well, but he used to shoot for Paul McCartney. So, of course, oh, wow. I used to come home on leave and all my friends I'd grown up with were either at college or got jobs. So daytime I had nothing to do. So I, I'd jump in the van and just go out, get a bit more work experience with this local guy. And uh, we'd end the van one day, um, driving down the road. I said, oh, where are we going today? And he said, oh, right, you're going to have to really behave yourself. We're going to McCartney's. So I was like, well, at the time, uh, Paul McCartney, it was when Linda was still alive, but he'd got hmm, probably about 10, between 10 and 20 Appaloosa horses. Oh, really? But they'd obviously got a thing for it. Um, most of them were just trims. One or two of them were shod, and a couple of them just got front shoes on. Um, but again, you know, I was 19, 20 years old. I wasn't very old at all, and was sort of like proper sort of well, I don't think I'd ever actually been around anyone famous at that point in my life. So, yeah, I was proper fanboy. And um, <laughs> and this goes back to the hype thing with you. I've been listening to Paul McCartney's voice all my life and just assumed that he was quite short. But I suppose in the Beatles, John Lennon was quite tall anyway, and I just assumed Paul McCartney was really short. And I can remember I was clenching up the front feet of his horse looking out of his stable, and this really, really tall Paul McCartney was walking down the garden path. <laughs> And he just walked into the stable, looked looked at me, went, "Ooh, who are you?" <laughs> I was like, "I was like, um, I'm with him." <laughs> but yeah, and then, then he asked me if I wanted a cup of tea, and um, yeah, I've got to say though, really, really nice, humble guy. That's awesome. Yeah, you know, he was just yeah. Once I'd calmed down a little bit, him and mm-hmm. Linda, I could remember your name. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Linda and Paul brought out some homemade biscuits and cups of tea, and um, yeah, very, very pleasant. I had quite a good chat with them actually. But that was wow. a long time ago. But yeah, sorry to name drop. Um, so if you was locked down with one person for three months, who would that person be? Um, probably Cody Gregory. Yeah, I think I, I mean, there's so much he has taught me, but there's so much more that I wish in my day to day, he'd be there to go, what are you doing? And uh, <laughs> so that I wouldn't have to go back at twice a year and, and see him there and repeat the same mistakes. I could actually, you know, retain more of it. So how old is Cody now? Oh, he's just a young chap. He I is. think he's. I think he's only 25 or 26. That's someone of that age. He's, he's traveled some miles, isn't he? In life. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's yep. um, yeah. He started young. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, just when he actually said it and his dad will say the same thing is his brain doesn't work like other people's. And no. yeah, it's uh, once you can catch up to him, Man, there's so much to learn there. Oh, I can yeah. imagine. So have you thought of a quote yet? Uh, I'm going to grab, if I can find it quickly, can I put the microphone down? I'm yeah, going to just try and grab a buck. Okay, just a sec. Well, the book got packed away with all this renovation stuff, if you saw the chaos around me, you'd understand. But um, it, it was going to be from Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And he's just, uh, the gist of the quote is just that quality is the thing that you are striving for. 
basically as a tradesperson, craftsperson, mm-hmm. quality is what you're always looking for. It's mm-hmm. what guides your every move. And, and that's what, it, when you're done the job and you, in the, our case, you put the horse's foot down, that's what makes you feel complete. And, mm-hmm. and your mind isn't at rest until you've, you think you've achieved at least part of that. That's yeah. what your guiding light is. So, um, <coughs> the book is a long journey to figuring that out, but it, yeah, it's, it's, it's a heavy read, but I, I've read it several times and mm. found it quite good. I think all the best books are a heavy read really, but yeah. That's yeah. True. Well, let's say a massive thank you for coming on and doing this, Brian. Well, uh, thank you for having me. And, I, uh, thanks for the surprise. <laughs> So again, just like to say a massive thank you to Brian Mullins there. Make sure if you haven't already, you check out his podcast. Um, again, you can get that through the normal channels via uh, Spotify or via iPhone podcast. I'm oh, sorry, Apple podcast. Um, that's the Mullins Farry podcast. Really, really interesting. Long format, but, you know, very in-depth conversations where he asks the right questions and you will at the end of it, feel like you know these farriers who have been talking. Um, yeah, so massive thank you to Brian. Um, I know it was very early in the morning in Canada when we had that conversation. Um, just, again, just like to thank all the people who have taken time to listen to these podcasts, you know. Um, the support's been great. The feedback I've been getting off people, again, is it's been very nice. Just remember, if there's any subjects you feel want addressing or discussing you know just drop me a message on social media um you can leave a review on the social media uh, on the sorry on the um podcast platforms um also just if you don't know already i've started to post um these podcasts on youtube on the lockdown learning farrier podcast youtube channel Again, there's lots of videos on there as well. One of the things with a lot of the online tuition we've been doing with the college students, certainly on the practical demonstration front, a lot of those demos, if they're any good, um, I've been uploading those onto the YouTube channel as well. So again, there's a lot of information on there, um, a lot of resource, a lot of videos. So, But again, thank you for your, for your support. Make sure you like and subscribe to these stuff. It helps show you support. And again, if you've got any comments, any questions, feel free to drop us a line.